Welcome everyone to another uh, episode of Film Roundtable. My name is Maria Prieto and I'm really thrilled to welcome our two guests today. But before I introduce them and we get started on this conversation, I'm going to lead us through a moment of silence to honor all 2,395,619 reported worldwide COVID deaths as of today. And we're recording this on February 14th, 2021. We'd also like to honor all of our black and brown brothers and sisters, as well as our First Nations brothers and sisters, whose lives have been taken by the hands of police brutality and other senseless acts of violence. Thanks guys, thanks everyone. Um, you know, these moments of silence have just been part of our ritual. We've been holding them since the first round table um, and, you know, film round table was born in the midst of the first lockdown, you know, when the whole world felt in a state of uncertainty. Um, so as we continue living through this global pandemic, which just it's vital that we do so with an awareness and with empathy towards one another. So having said that, I would like to introduce our guest today. We have wildlife cinematographer Rolf Steinem. Rolf's work is featured predominantly in BBC natural history documentaries such as Planet Earth 2, Seven Worlds, and The Perfect Planet. He's currently in the high Arctic prepping his next project. So welcome Rolf to the round table. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm very excited to be here. <laughs> yeah, you, you look cozy. I like it. <laughs> you, you fit the setting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's definitely cold here. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty windy outside. It's, uh, I think it's like minus 15 with the wind is like minus 25. So it's definitely Arctic conditions here. Well, joining us as well in temperatures that are cold, but definitely not that frigid is uh, Freddie DeVos. Freddie's a producer known for his work on planet Earth and frozen planet. Him and Rolf have collaborated together on a couple of projects and We'll once again work together later this year on the third installment of Planet Earth. So welcome, Freddie. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's not it's not Arctic here. <laughs> I'm indoors, quite cozy, really. Yeah, you you look you look very. I like the plants. For those listening, not watching this, Freddie has a beautiful like just plants hanging. Like you look like you could just read a book where you're at for hours. Yeah, I think um I think that's something that's happened. Through lockdown, it's gone to an excess. I no longer have any more space for plants in my house. It's just uh, <laughs> something I've been collecting and collecting for sanity purposes. I just love looking after them. So it's. I love it. I love it. Well, I'm really excited that you're both here. Um, I have to admit, what really drew me to this conversation is how little I know about it. You know, when I watch Planet Earth or other wildlife documentaries, I'm just, I'm fascinated and blown away that there's a human capturing these moments. And, you know, I try to like wrap my head around how it happens and it, I don't know, it's just, I don't get it. So I'm glad that you're both here and I can pick your brains about it. But before we get into that, I think it's important for the audience to get a little backstory of like your origins. So Rolf, could you talk a little bit about, you know, what inspired you to go down this career? Oh my, um, yeah, I mean, to be honest, I have always been a little bit of a misfit uh, back in Germany. So I started to dream quite early in my life as a teenager to just live in a cabin in Alaska. And uh, 
yeah, live in the wild without the civilization because I was just struggling with school and I was just like, I didn't fit the system or in general, the society. So, um, so the, the idea, like the idea or how I came to the idea to become a wildlife cameraman was really escapist. You know, I was just, I wanted to escape from, from the world that I come, came from. And uh, so I started watching wildlife films, you know, like, because I dreamt to live with, with wildlife and I watched all these like endless films and, uh, and, uh, and I started to travel into the wilderness, you know, at first with the bicycle, but then I realized I'm still dependent on a road. So I wanted to start hiking, you know, so I did month long hikes and then, uh, and then deeper and deeper into the wilderness until I started to develop these crazy dreams like, I wanted to become part, part of a muskox herd, really live with the wildlife, you know. So it just got, and, and when I came home to Germany, you know, I watched all these films. So um, they were like my door to the world, the films, you know, because I could only afford a limited time of, uh, a limited amount of time in the, in the actual wilderness. So, um, so at some point, I remember that clearly I was in Greenland. I was... I, you know, I did a, a long hike. I was young. I was naive. I was almost starving because I didn't have enough food. I had to walk 200 kilometers from one village to the next. And, and it, it, it was just like, I didn't have enough food. And the, the musk oxen that I wanted to live with, they didn't allow me to, to spend time with them because the Inuit people hunt them. So they were crazy, afraid of me. They were just running away. So my dream to live with them and become my member didn't work. I didn't have enough food, but then I realized, you know, I just thought, you know, the perfect job would be to combine my love with, uh, for the natural world with my love for films, you know? So I just, I never used a, a camera for, for filming purpose or anything. It was to, a totally naive idea. And, and, and I just made that decision. I said, I want to make wildlife films. And, and that was the start, you know. Uh, so I came home and I contacted all these production companies um, in Germany or the television channels, which were like public television was producing these wildlife films. And they said, yeah, we're looking for an apprentice. But I was, I, you know, I was a misfit. I didn't have a, a, like, I didn't study biology. I was just a naive guy. So I wasn't confident enough to even apply for jobs you know so I knew they they were actually looking for apprentices but I I wasn't confident enough to to write back so what I what because you know, I, I just so I tried to buy some 16 millimeter equipment and my dream was to go to Alaska and just start filming you know totally naive and what happened then was on eBay when there were there was a there were some guys selling uh, ARRI 16 millimeter equipment and they said in this in the description of the gear that they made wildlife films with it. So I contacted them and said, hey, I'm a wannabe wildlife filmmaker. Would you recommend me to, to buy your gear? And they said, hey, you're totally like, uh, you're a little bit like um, um, old school here. You know, the digital times have started. You know, I didn't even re realize that, that people were not shooting on film anymore. It was like, like 2000, three to 2004 something like that and uh and 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 they said you know we we wouldn't recommend you to buy this gear and i stayed a little bit in touch with them and asked them some questions they were make, working on a film in finland and 
And, and finally, the, the filmmaker, the producer said, hey, you know, can you drop us a, 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 yeah, like a CV, just that we know who you are, because maybe we, 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 you can help us out. So I, I, I wrote them the CV, a little bit of the story of my life, and I had nothing to offer. You know, I was not a biologist. I was not a cameraman. I had no experience. But what I did was I said, you know, I have not much clue about wildlife even. You know, I'm just dreaming, you know, like I just love all the northern wildlife. But I look at it like with my love for music, you know, when you're in deep love with some music, you find at first the big bands. And then when you get deeper and deeper into it, you find the small bands. And funny enough, this producer guy had a music label. So he had this like inexperienced, whatever, you know, this unknown guy and he makes in, he wants to be a wildlife filmmaker, but compares it to music. So he thought, I, I think that's what he thought. He would just thought this is the right guy for me, you know? So he said, if you buy your own camera gear, if you pay everything yourself, you can come up to our location. You can uh, film with us. Um, you can try to film things that we have no time for. And if the footage is good, we buy it from you, but you don't get any money from us. And I did that, you know, I didn't even have a driver's license. I did everything with a bike. So I put my bike into the train, went up to Finland and I cycled to the location. I lived in the tent. I tried to film the wildlife. Of course, I was not very successful because the first time I switched on the video camera, like a small Sony camera, that was the first time I switched on a video cam in the field. You know, I never used a camera before. So I was completely naive, you know. So, of course, I didn't film anything which made it in the film. But the guys gave me another chance. I, I, they watched the rushes. They gave me advice. And, 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 and after I, we worked together, I locked all the rushes. You know, at that time, you had to lock the rushes in real time. You had to play them into the, into the like, onto the, onto the whatever it was. Like, it was still tape-based. So... 180 hours, I, I just locked the footage, wrote everything down, and then they dropped an email to all the wildlife filmmakers in Germany and said, we have the super motivated guy. Is anybody looking for an apprentice, you know? And I got an interview at the biggest, just to finish this long story, um, I got an interview at the biggest production company in Germany, you know? And I was, as I say, I was not confident at all. So I got to the interview. There were all these people, like this hero filmmaker, you know, they were eating lunch and I was sitting there and they asked me questions. I could barely speak. I was so nervous, you know, and, uh, and, and I got the job finally and I couldn't believe it. Like one year in apprenticeship as a camera assistant in a big wildlife film production company. And the funny thing, just to finish this, after half a year, you know, I, I really grew into this company and my colleagues after half a year, they said to me, Rob, we, we have to, we feel a little guilty because the pr producer asked us after that lunch, if we want to work with you. And everybody said, no, this is a weird guy. But the producer himself said, I have a veto here. You know, I, I, I think this guy is super motivated. We have to give him a chance. And that was the reason, you know, but nobody wanted to work with me. And that was a little bit the story of my life. You know, I was always a misfit, but I was incredibly motivated and I had this dream and, you know, and then I got started. <laughs> I'm curious, the first time that you went out on the field and, you know, turned on a camera for the first time, were you honest with the people who had hired you that you didn't yeah. know? Okay. Brutally honest, brutally <laughs> honest. <laughs> you know, there was nothing to hide. You know, I had no clue, um, but you know, I was I, I was looking a lot at photography. You know, I had these 
my favorite wildlife photographers. I was really deep into the subject. You know, I knew every filmmaker who made, you know, I, I wrote every film down. I watched, I wrote all the species down, which were shown in the films. Mm -hmm. So I had these massive uh, uh, notebooks full of information. So when I met the filmmakers, I knew more about wildlife films than then because they made wildlife films, but I was this encyclopedia, you know? Mm -hmm. But of course, I was not experienced in making films, but I was completely obsessed, you know, and I think that always helped me to be believable, mm -hmm. you know, because I, I didn't have any experience, but I was just really full of knowledge about the medium film, you know, not not the real meat, like the, the, the technology, but like who made those films? What did he film? You know, like it, it, so that the, the, it was very theoretical beginning for me. You know, it was not like my hobby was to film wildlife. It was never my hobby. So when people say you made your hobby your profession, I can only say no. It was never my hobby. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah, it really became a. Freddie, Freddie, what about you? What are you? What's your origin story? I mean, Rolf's story. I love that story. It's just amazing. I, <laughs> I mean, you know, let's just remember, Rolf said he wanted to be part of a musk oxen herd. You know, when oh, you I... look at those animals where they live, that was his dream. That's, and it wasn't just a dream that lived in his head. He went to try and achieve it. That's pretty amazing. Mine was quite. Mine was quite different. I um. <laughs> I think I was quite influenced by my grandfather. My grandfather was in the Navy during the Second World War and he spent his time bird watching. He went all around the world noting down where he saw different species and he wrote a few books on seabirds and their, and their um, movement patterns and where they went. And so I think a lot of my love came from him for the natural world. Um, and with my parents, I moved around a lot. We lived in France and then we lived in the Middle East for four years. And then we lived in Hong Kong, lived mm -hmm. back in the UK. Um, but I came into wildlife filmmaking from an academic route. So I, I love nature. I love being outside. I love traveling. And I ended up doing a PhD on baboon behavior, mm -hmm. which was fantastic. So that took five years. And I was following baboons around from dawn till dusk every day. Um, just documenting their behavior and trying to answer the questions I was, I was asking for my PhD. And so I was just fascinated by animal behavior. Why are these animals behaving the way they are? And not just, oh, let's look at the group, but look at the individual. What's special about that individual? Why is it making that decision? And I think for me in the job at the moment, that's still my favorite part of the role of wildlife filmmaking is when I'm in the field and trying to get into the head of the animal that we're filming and trying to guess what they're going to do next. So anyway, so after I did a PhD on baboons, I, um, I had a big debt <laughs> and I did a job as a sound man on the series Meerkat Manor, which was doing really well at the time. It was the third most highly watched um, program in the US after Sex in the City and something else. <laughs> um, and then came Meerkat Manor. And that was so enjoyable. That was six months filming meerkats out in South Africa. Um, and after that, I had a big realization that Academia, I loved it, and I still think um, I have a huge amount of respect for uh, behavioral ecologists and evolutionary psychologists working in the academic fields. Um, but I think that 
they work very hard to produce publications that don't necessarily get read by many people. And then, and then it's often our roles as um, communicators of science try and get it out to a wider audience. And I, I um, after Meerkat Manor and a few other projects, I, I got a job on Frozen Planet, which enabled me to go to the Arctic and to the Antarctic, which had always been a massive dream of mine. And I think also the thought of working on something where you can talk about animal behavior, but to a really significant audience was, was very important. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, you said you were a sound guy on Meerkat Manor. Like I picture you with holding a boom. I mean, how do you, how do you actually record sounds from these meerkats on the field? Yeah, so that was really interesting. I was friends with a cameraman, Ted Giffords, and he had the choice, he'd, he'd been asked, right, you need a sound man to work with you. Um, and he had the choice to work with someone who had lots of experience recording sound or someone who had more experience watching animals. And my, um, my office where we studied baboon behavior was at Cambridge Uni and it was right next to the meerkat office where they had this long-term project studying meerkats. So a lot of my friends were doing their PhDs or their masters or their postgrads on meerkat behavior. And I'd read a lot of the literature. So he approached me and I said, yeah, I'd, I'd love the gig. Um, and it, it is, they, they're so well habituated these animals. So, you know, there were times when we're down on the floor with the camera on the floor, I'm down with the boom, you know, just like a human interview, trying to get the sounds of the meerkats. And then, you know, a meerkat will jump up onto your shoulders and stand on top of your head and use you as a little lookout spot to look out for predators or other groups of meerkats. So it, it was exactly how you'd imagine recording yeah. the sound of, of humans, just trying to, get, trying to get what they were saying. Oh my God, I love that. And, you know, I mean, now you're producing and as producer, do you get to spend much time on the field or are you mostly, you know, back wherever the production hub is? Well, Rolf spends a lot, lot more time in the field than I do. Um, I tend to work on these landmark productions, which take four years. So the first year is researching the mm. program that I'll be working on. The next two years will be filming. I'll typically go out on maybe two or three trips a year. The trips are, are generally a month long. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and then the last year is in the edit and the post production, putting it all together. So, um, so it's a it's a different lifestyle to Rolf, who's out um, for long periods. And Rolf is unusual in wildlife cinematographers in the sense that he tends to take longer shoots in tougher conditions than many. Um, you know, so if you if you've got a really tough Antarctic shoot, then Rolf's the man you go to and say, <laughs> do you want to over, you know, he's been offered overwintering in the Antarctic. He's, um, and he's done some really tough gigs. So whereas, um, whereas I get to pick and choose mine a little bit more, but I, I do enjoy the tough ones too. Well, actually Rolf, this brings me to a question for you. Um, you know, when we spoke previously, you'd mentioned that, that returning to the Arctic and returning to these missions, it feels like home. So could you expand a little bit on that and also talk about your reintegration into society after those long expeditions? <laughs> yeah, I mean, to be honest, you know, like this trip is, I lost all work last year because of COVID, you know, all my shoots got canceled. So last year was a really tricky year for me, not only financially, 
of course, because I didn't earn money, but also because I was forced to stay at home in Germany for one year. And that made me realize again, you know, like I can't live without the wilderness, you know, so I really need it. So I came, this, this shoot is in Norway, in the Norwegian Arctic. So I, it was an odyssey, you know, like uh, I, I made it into Norway one, uh, uh, 10 hours or nine hours before they closed the borders. I had to do the quarantine 10 days, had to do the test. Now, when I arrived, you know, like when I flew into Svalbard, you know, I'm on this archipelago in the, in the high Arctic, close to the North Pole. And uh, when, we threw, when we flew through the clouds and suddenly I could see the island, you know, these snowy mountains, this endless wilderness. It was for me really like, uh, it was my, my heart started beating really fast. It was like, wow, I go home, you know? And it's not only that, you know, it, it doesn't only mean going home into the wilderness. It's also meeting the people that I've worked with in the, in the last, uh, the, um, the guys I'm working with here, I, I worked with him the first time in 2013. So I, I met them again and again. I met them in the Arctic. I met them in Antarctic. So it's almost like coming home to the family, you know, a second family. And for me, this is, is, is it's really like also working again with people who have a similar spirit because back in Germany, people think about other stuff. You know, they, they do other stuff but here the people are naturalists they spend all their time in the wilderness with the polar bears and it's really so for me it's 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 really something very emotional um back home i have to admit you know as i told you before i'm a, i'm i have always been a misfit i i i knew i don't want to work in an office or with 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 yeah just living a regular life and i realized that last year again that there's nothing for me there you know like the, in, the landscapes are industrial there's agriculture everywhere there's cities everywhere it's urban the landscape is more or less dead you know um you know you people look at a, a green meadow in, in germany and they think wow it's green meadow but actually there's so much fertilizer on it that it because it has to grow fast to produce grass for the cows that only like three different flowers can can cope with that amount of fertilizer. So for me, with the ice that I have, like um, having worked in, the, in in wild places, having worked in places which are really alive and full of biodiversity, I see those places and I see they're actually dead, and and that makes it really hard for me because other people don't realize that. You know, people live in these urban environments and they don't realize that the landscape, the nature around them, is more or less dead. You know, and and for me, there's no life in these landscapes anymore. And last year, you know, 2020, when I was back home, I realized that I, I, I barely left my flat because I was so I couldn't I couldn't bear to look at the same three flowers every day. You know, there's, there was so little diversity. And uh, yeah, and that's why for me, I think the integration in society will become even harder now. And I think I, all I want to do, if I'm really honest, is work. I just want to work. You know, I want to be in the wilderness and work. Did I, did I, was this an answer to your question? Yes, I don't yes know. it was. It really was. Um, Freddie, you, you have a family. And I mean, I think Rolf can take these long jobs, these long expeditions, because you're, you're kind of a lone wolf, Rolf. So Freddie, I'm curious how uh, having a family, for you, how you've been able to juggle this job where I'm sure you do have to be hyper-focused on it, even if you're not out on the field. Um, 
so yeah, just a little bit about how having a family has changed your dynamic with the job. Well, I think it's, um, at times it's a really intense job and, you know, then you, you really do feel it and time away from the children is, um, is, is really tough and it changes, you know, when they're, when they're young, it was this idea of let's try and keep in touch at least, you know, now with the internet and we can keep in touch. And then realizing that sometimes it's good to go away and limit the communication from the children's perspective at certain ages that they, um, I've got two daughters and they kind of forgot that I wasn't around and got used to it. And so me getting back in touch sometimes made them more sad that they, they mm. suddenly realized that they missed me. And then they come to an age where they can ask you not to go. <laughs> um, and that's a really tough, a really tough question. I think, um, I think I've had to do a lot of soul searching around this subject. And I make sure that the trips I do are meaningful. Mm -hmm. And so that I realize that there's a cost to them, to the family and um, there's other types of costs, but, but they're important trips to do. Um, and, that's, and that's really important. I think you know, Rolf and I have spent good time talking through what wildlife films are, how they've changed, where they need to go. Um, and I think that in the past, we made a lot of films which were really beautiful to look at and really fascinating about intrinsic animal behavior, which is, which is wonderful. But the threats that are facing the natural world now are horrific. And I don't think that, I recently read an article which looked at the, the gap between the, the general understanding of the threats facing the natural world and what's actually happening to the natural world. And there are 43 million trees that are destroyed a day. So, you know, when you, when you hear of fantastic efforts like Ecosia planting trees, you hear of cities like New York and Milan planning to plant 3 million trees over three years, you know, things that should be championed. When you, when you compare that to 43 million trees being destroyed every year, you think that, we heard, we know about the Amazon burning, we hear about that. We heard a lot about the Australian fires and we hear a lot about the Californian fires. How many people heard about the fires in Siberia? So in that year, 2019, 12 million hectares of Australian forest burnt, about 2.4 million hectares of the Californian rainforest burnt, 2.2 million hectares of the Amazon burnt. I mean, these are, these are rough six million hectares of Siberian forest burnt. And this is something that, there's, there's, this, there's this huge gap. And so I think as wildlife filmmakers, we, we, it's important to bring an audience in, to love the natural world, to appreciate it, to be fascinated by it, be intrigued, talk about all the awe and fascination, but it's also really important to be real mm -hmm. and to talk about what's, what's really happening now that's difficult because we're working on programs and series that go to huge audiences. Planet Earth 2, they think reached around a billion people around the world. And there's lots of families watching that. So it's, 
you don't want to alienate people. You don't want people to switch off and think that wildlife films are a sad, depressing place. Um, you want to invite everyone in, but at the same time, you do want to raise the alarm that things need to change and they need to change really fast. And I think coming back to your initial question, that's the key. If I'm going off on a shoot and if I'm leaving my family for a month or with Rolf on our last trip for six weeks to the Antarctic, um, then you've got to think, well, what, what is it that you're doing? And before it used to be enough to just say, well, this is the most fascinating animal behavior in the most spectacularly beautiful place with an incredibly charismatic animal. And now it, it, it needs to be more, it needs to be talking about an issue that's, that the environment is facing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're right, there's a reality that you have to portray so people can witness it and they're no longer living in total apathy towards what's happening to our ecosystems. But I'm curious, because I do think there has to be the balance, because you're right, if it's just complete depressive images, people are gonna turn it off. So as a producer or Rolf as a cameraman, what, what do you do to strike that balance? Rolf, do you wanna answer that or should I go for? I think that's, that's you. Okay, no, I mean, me. I think, I think, um, I think, I think it's really important to remember that the natural world is an incredible place and we are there to document it and to show everyone its beauty um, and get everyone fascinated by it because that's what draws me back to it time and time again. That's my hook. I get to a place and I think, why is an animal doing that? And, and that's what keeps me observing that animal. You know, spending three years in the field with baboons dawn to dusk on, on seven, seven month field seasons each year. So out every day looking at the baboons, you've got to have a driver to get up at four o'clock in the morning every morning to get out there, find the baboons. And for me, it's, it's, it's that search for, for understanding. And there's so much still we don't know. You know. Why does a flock of birds fly from one foraging patch and fly to another one? Who's making those decisions? Is it democratic? Is it despotic? Is it a combination of the two? Is it the hungriest individuals? Is it the most dominant individuals? I mean, some amazing big questions still unanswered in the animal world. And, and I, think, I think for the programs that I work on, that's really important to tap into that, to you know, go and capture brand new behavior and try to understand why it's happening. I think when you have a very engaging, um, program that looks on all those aspects of the natural world that we love, then I think it's within every filmmaker's tool to use a range of emotions. Mm -hmm. So at that point, if um, you're invested in the film because you're enjoying it, then to learn about some of the problems that the environment is facing, I think is, it, it feels satisfying, at least we're doing lots of audience research on this. I think there's a quest, there's a, there's a hunger, a thirst for learning more about the issues facing the environment. But I think that it's going to be a rapidly developing part of our filmmaking world because if people think, oh, here we go, this is the conservation sequence, you know, and it's predictable in the way we do it, then I think that will be a bit of a turn off.
Mm. I think that we have to think. But for me, the, the key is to characterize the individual that's, that's suffering. So in Seven Worlds, One Planet, Rolf and I worked on the Antarctica episode. And within that episode, um, a good friend of ours, John Aitchison, filmed a sequence about gray-headed albatross. And in, in the, the film, I really wanted to talk about climate change. And typically, if you look at films about the Antarctic and climate change, you see huge hunks of ice carving off a glacier and falling into the sea and you hear about rising sea levels and melting ice. And that's important information. Um, I thought sometimes it's not that emotional. And to see a baby albatross that's on its nest facing huge winds because climate change has brought about much stronger and much more frequent storms in the sub-Antarctic island of South Georgia. And that this chick is then blown off its nest and its nest is up high because when it snows a lot and when it rains a lot, it wants to be up high so it doesn't get wet and freeze to death. So it's very, very hard for the chick to climb back onto the, onto the nest. And what's extraordinary is the moment when the parent comes back to feed the chick, but it doesn't recognize its chick because the only way it recognizes its chick, it doesn't use sound, smell or sight. It just recognizes its chick by knowing my chick will always be on its nest. It will never be blown off. From evolutionary time, that's a really consistent <laughs> signal that that's its chick. And so it doesn't help its chick to get back onto the nest, even though it's right next to it. Um, that's a really traumatic thing to film for the crew to film. And it's a, it's a very, very sad story because there are loads of baby albatross chicks. These are birds that live well into their 60s. You know, incredible birds that form lifetime, li lifelong bonds between the males and the females. Beautiful, graceful birds. And, you know, they're, their population is declining at a rate where, where extinction is, is on the horizon. It's, it's, it's right there staring at them in the face. And, and climate change is a major, major driver in that. And what was important about that was it was a story about climate change where you bought into the story, here's a chick, you want you fall in love with the chick. I hope people fall in love with the chick, want to learn more about the chick and engage in the story. And then, and then they realize well, this is the consequence of, of activities that we're doing in our industrialized nations, mm -hmm. even though it's miles and miles away in the Antarctic. M M Maria, may I, may I tell, tell you one story, you know, also from Antarctica, um, uh, which, which made me realize, you know, that Freddie really wants to make wildlife films in a different way or wants to change it slightly, you know, like, um, and to face reality in, in, in a new way. And that was, you know, like we went together to South Georgia. That's a 10 day trip on a small sailing boat, you know, um, it's Antarctic seas. It's an absolutely brutal trip. I get incredibly seasick. Freddie gets incredibly seasick. We're almost dying on that boat. So after nine days, we land on South Georgia in an old whaling station. It's a, I think it was a Norwegian whaling station, um, like between 1900 and 1900, uh, sorry, 1960. And I think like 75,000 whales have been killed there. Now, you know, 
we arrive at that whaling station, which is in the deepest bay of that big sub-Antarctic island. And we find out, you know, like things like the first two years, the whalers didn't have to leave that bay because it takes them 20 minutes to kill a whale, yeah, to, to get it all, you know, get to, to use it like the meat to, to cut it in pieces. It takes 20 minutes. The first two years, they didn't have to leave the, the bay. The bay was so full of whales that then that they could just get one whale after another out of the bay. And, and after that, they had to go all around the island. But, you know, we arriving at the island, we have there one night, you know, we are completely destroyed. Freddie says, Rolf, this is a whaling station. You know, a ton of wildlife, amazingly charismatic wildlife has been killed here. Among them, the biggest blue whale ever measured, more than three, 33 meters long. The biggest animal which has ever lived on earth was killed in this whaling station. It's called Gritwicken. And he says, Rolf, this is not in the script, but let's cover this whaling station at night in time lapses and, and capture the creepiness of this incredibly deadly place. And we, I'm, I'm delirious, you know, Freddie was slightly delirious too. I hadn't, I couldn't eat. I was only drinking soup. I was completely destroyed. We were, we had two lights. We went into that winning station and one night we had good stars and we just used the, the creepy lights of, of, of that whaling station because there were some like these uh, lights for the, for, the, for the boats. You know, there was a green one and a red one. So we had some natural sources and we just made that thing work. One night took, I don't know, how many shots did we take? Seven, eight different time lapses. So we are delirious. We take those time lapses and Freddie says, it's not in the script, but I will make this part of the, I will make this sequence part of the film. So there is... Um, a presentation in Bristol, the film is finished. You know, David Attenborough is, is, is there in the cinema. 300 people could apply for the tickets. 50,000 people applied for the tickets. So I'm in the cinema with those 300 excited people. And the film is shown and there's the creepy sequence of the whaling station in it. And after that, there's a panel with the series producer, Scott Alexander. And the series producer says, we are proud there is this sequence in the film. There's no animal in the film. There's no animal behavior, but we made it work on a BBC landmark slot, best slot in, in, in the world, you know, highest viewing figures. And we decided to show it. And I think that's what amazes me about, uh, about Freddie, you know, like he made it work. We were talking about it, you know, all this destruction and he made it work that it ended up in the film and, and that got me excited. And I was really proud, you know, to be part of that film. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds, Freddie, as if uh, you, you're such a storyteller and even you saw that even in your delirium, you're like, there is a story here. We don't even have a character on the screen, but just the visuals of it and time-lapse will tell that story. And I think as a producer, that is so vital to be able to think that way and not just, you know, in like the producer mentality, like you're both an artist and a producer. Well, that's very kind, Rolf. I mean, I, and thanks, Maria. I, I, um, I think it's, it's true. It, it is true. Ten, ten days on, on that boat um, with Rolf didn't eat for eight days. He had one apple that came up pretty much straight afterwards. I mean, Rolf was a skeleton coming off that boat. Um, and, um, 
and I'd, I'd been there before and felt really emotional there before, but to be there with Rolf and both of us just, just witnessing the horrors of a place. You go on a tour, you're taken on a tour and you hear about how hard the life was for these whalers because it was such a dangerous job. And, um, and, and on the tour, what we, what we didn't hear was that, you know, blue whales were taken from 100% of their population down to 1% the Antarctic blue whale. You know, we didn't, we didn't hear about the fact that the waters were red in that bay for the first two years because there was slaughtering happening on such a huge scale. Now, South Georgia is a wildlife mecca. It's so incredible to be able to go there to see wildlife. When Rolf and I landed on St. Andrew's Bay, you get off the boat, you land on the beach, you walk up through these elephant seals. These elephant seals are enormous. They weigh four tons, they're six meters long. They're just packing out the whole two kilometer beach. You look up to mountains the size of the Alps behind you, and you've got 500,000 king penguins beyond you. So it's really easy to go, this is wildlife spectacle heaven. But on those 10 days, we saw a couple of whales. I'd been there, yeah, two or three whales, Rolf, we saw on the whole 10 day journey down to the island. I'd been there nine years previously. I hadn't seen a single whale in the whole trip. Now the blue whales are finally, after the ban on hunting blue whales many decades ago, are finally starting to increase. Um, but it was, it was really, really emotional at that whaling station, just thinking of the horror that had happened there. And what I did afterwards when I got back to Bristol, and one thing to say is that Rolf is an absolutely incredible time-lapse photographer. And I think what Rolf brings to it is a real feeling. And that's what we, that's what we had to do. We had to, we were using the stars and the movement of the stars to sort of represent the lives of so many whales that have been lost and it's windy and cloud is moving over and you've got these big rusting iron vats and all this machinery and it's clanking and like Rolf said you've got this blue, this red and green light on both sides of the metalwork and it, it just it, it it is evocative of of a strangely beautiful horrific place really horrific place um and when I got back I read lots of accounts of whalers and what they what they'd written about their times in South Georgia and so many of the accounts talk about how the first whale that they witnessed dying they hated it they absolutely hated it talk about majestic animals it's this one story of you know a harpoon hitting a whale in the windpipe and the sound coming out was horrific and they said that if whales could speak if whales could vocalize in that way, surely no whales would have been killed because that noise was so terrifying. But what's interesting was that a lot of them said that after a week, it actually became a sport. They turned it around into, actually you're chasing after this enormous whale that's traveling so fast and you've got to strike it in just the right place. And then you've got to hold onto it and not get the boat pulled under and capsized. And there's a skill to it. and 
and it's a, it's a, it's an interesting it's an interesting read because you see that humans we can do this we can change our mentality and that's what i think we need to do is keep checking ourselves mm-hmm. you know keep keep checking are, are these things okay you know what are the modern day issues that are absolutely awful we look back on i was in the black lives matter march in bristol where we toppled the slave trader um, this summer, which was amazing because two years ago I was at a demonstration um, against that slave trader statue being in Bristol. I, what is that doing representing putting a man like that on a plinth who's re- you know, responsible for 80,000 deaths of Africans coming over? And it's just, it's awful. And, um, and I I, I constantly think to myself, anyway, it was great when it was toppled finally. And I, I think to myself, what is modern day, what is slavery? What, what's, what, and I think what's happening to the natural world is something that generations ahead of us will go, what? How did you let that happen? The Amazon rainforest home to one in 10 species is being burned down to make more space for cows. Surely we don't need to eat so much beef. I mean, it's really simple. It's really, really simple. 96% of all the biomass of mammals on this planet are humans and our livestock. 4% belong to the mammals in the wild. That's all the blue whales, all the other cetaceans, all the bears, all the wolves, all the rabbits, all the mice, everything in the mammal, in the mammal order, You've got 4% that's wild. And that's simple. If we eat less meat, we use less animal produce, then we create more space for wildlife. It's that simple. And I think that's one of the things we've got to do. And that's, for me, the big, big issue is factory farming. And that's another way to to resolve that. You know, it's this thing. Rolf and I go to Gritviken and think about the slaughtering of whales and how awful that is. But what we don't do, what not enough of us do, is go to a factory farm and look at a pig in a cage that can only stand up but can't take a step forward. And that's where it lives. That's where it lives its entire adult life. And you think that's an atrocity, absolute atrocity, and we need to end it. And I think that our films need to, wildlife films, you know, we need a massive diversity of wildlife films. We need films that engage people and we need some films that are tough as well. I think the era is coming where we really need to speak the truth in, in sometimes you know, difficult ways so that we, we all have those difficult conversations with ourselves. How, how do you speak to your daughters about this? Okay, that's a very good question. Very good question. Um, so I definitely get eco-anxiety at times. Um, I'm just reading article after article of what's happening to the natural world. And I think that for children under the age of 10, I think it's very, very important for adults to have this. We've got this. This is a problem. There's no hiding away from it being a problem, but we've got this. And, and I do believe that, you know, I, I do believe that we can turn it around really quite easily. And I think that there are trends going that way. Okay, this is amazing. I listened to this. I listened to this scientist speak recently and he said, when you get a nuclear power station, you, um, they, they use their materials and they create waste, awful, awful toxic radioactive waste. And they have to 
make sure that waste is looked after for a thousand years. And that is within their budget. <laughs> so when they sell you their electricity, you've paid for the waste being looked after. He said, it's simple. That's what you do with fossil fuels. You just say, this is the cost of what one barrel of oil will cause in economic terms, because we know it, you know, the article that came out last week, which said one in five deaths on the planet is due to respiratory problems which come about from the burning of fossil fuels. I mean, it's crazy, it's crazy. And so this man who was really high up in the negotiation of the International Panel on Climate Change and getting the quotas put in, um, he, he said he spoke to a, a huge array of engineers within the um, fossil fuel industry and said, look, can you do two things? One is you sell oil, you sell gas, much more expensive, and you incorporate the cost of what it's doing to the planet and to human society. And two, can you come up with solutions so we can extract some of that carbon in the air and sequester it back? Can you come up with that? And all these engineers are saying, yeah, we're, we're in, some of the best engineers in the world and we're in an incredibly rich industry. I mean, it's just been taken over by Twitter and Facebook and social media, but before just a couple of years ago, it was the most profitable industry in the world, fossil fuel. And so there, there are solutions, you know, we can, we can eat less meat and we can, we can go towards renewables if, if there was a real will. And you see some countries are really doing that, like Costa Rica are doing amazing things. So coming back to your question, I think, I think with children, yes, talk about the problems, really talk about the solutions. I think that's really important and really, really let them know that we got this. And I wouldn't actually say 10, I'd say older, you know, until you feel like your child is really becoming an adult. Actually, what am I talking about? Myers 10, yeah, 13 at least. <laughs> like give them, give them the feeling that this is something that we're on top of and we've got this because otherwise it's, um, it's, it's really frightening when you see children with mental health issues and, and one of those factors being, you know, eco-anxiety, that's, that's a really sad thing to see. Mm -hmm. um, kind of sidetracking here back to, you know, you guys being on the field. Uh, Rolf, you're, you're enamored both by Arctic foxes Arctic wolves and musk, musk oxen. And on a project, you had to film uh, the wolves hunting the musk oxen. <laughs> so in that moment, do you find yourself emotionally affected by the thought of, you know, either a musk oxen dying or an Arctic, like, how do you capture the scene? Are you just hyper-focused on it? And are you able to re remove yourself emotionally from it? Um, I'm definitely hyper-focused because it's, you know, it is so much effort to actually get into a situation like that because it's not only the preparation for the shoot, you know, it's also you, you, you work years towards that in your career that people trust you with such a big mission, you know. So, you know, like to get to that place is it's one of the most lo expensive locations in the world. You have an incredible responsibility already financially because these people invest this money producers like freddie um so um when you actually get into this situation it's 
nothing else than adrenaline. You know, your, your whole body is full of adrenaline and you just make intuitive decisions. But, you know, and, and to be honest, you know, when it's happening, you are so focused on the filming because you have to make tons of decisions. You know, which wolf do you film? Do you, uh, because if you, if, you, if you decide to film the wrong wolf who actually attacks, you know, you mess up, you can mess up the whole sequence, you know. So you have to keep it all in focus, you know, like it's an incredible amount of excitement and adrenaline. And to be honest, I'm really, really just busy trying to capture it as good as I can. But for example, I filmed once a pack of wolves killing a musk oxen, you know, and yeah, it was brutal. You know, I knew I had to film it because that's my job. But they were eating the musk oxen alive. You know, the musk oxen at some point was so weak, um, she could actually not defend herself anymore. And she was just lying there um, with, yeah, she, I could see she was still alive and she didn't make any sounds. She was full of dignity, just accepting her destiny, you know. And, and it was emotional for me at that stage um, when the hunt was over to film it. But, you know, we returned a day, like, when we returned to our research station in which we were, we, we were living, I was already really discussing it with my crew, you know, with my assistant producer and who I was in the field with and, and the AP, the, um, uh, sorry, and the second cameraman. And I was saying like, this was, yeah, that was intense, you know, like seeing this musk oxen go down. But the next day we returned to the place and we found a second head. So we thought in the first moment, we, we, we missed a, a, another kill. But what happened was this female was pregnant. So they, they killed the female and they killed her baby inside of her. And she, that baby was like, it was a big um, a skull already. So when you see these things, you know, it's like, I think that's the ambiguous ambiguity of life you know like you you want to see wolves hunting and then you know they need the, to kill to survive because they're predators they can't just eat grass they're not that's not their yeah they can't survive on that but it will for me personally i was when i saw that i mean of course you get emotional and of course you uh, you, you, you think about it and you sit back when you're back in the research and you sit there and you think, wow, what I just witnessed is that's the, that's the, that's life in the wilderness. You know, it's, these things are life and death situations. These guys are not fighting a box fight or they don't play basketball or something, you know, it's not, it's, it's life and death, you know, and, and I think, it is definitely for me dealing with that. It's 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 serious, and it makes me think a lot. You know, so uh, um, it's not easy to 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 just. I'm, I'm I'm the least one, honestly. I'm the least one who is excited afterwards, saying, uh, "Oh my god, I just got this incredible behavior." I mean, when I watch the rushes and I see that I shot it in a way that you can edit it, of course I'm excited. You know, because it's a lot of pressure to deal with, but but. At the same time, you know, right after it happened, I'm, I'm not like, yeah, I got this kill, you know, that not at all. Mm -hmm. mm. Uh, Freddie, you mostly, your projects take you to very desolate locations, but you spearheaded uh, the Planet Earth Cities episode. 
So I'm curious what some of the challenges that arose from shooting a film about wildlife in an environment that's so dense with humans. Oh, that's a, yeah, that's a good question. It's paperwork, Maria. That's the biggest challenge. It's paperwork. When Rolf, when Rolf goes, um, you know, to the wilderness, then maybe he's going to a massive national park and then you get one filming permit. And that's, um, that's, that's great. You know, that's your filming permit for the whole month and off you go. When you go to New York City to film peregrines, you need filming permits to cover <laughs> this bird that's flying all the way across Manhattan. So, you know, we spent one person nine months solidly just getting the permissions in place to be on top of this skyscraper, on top of that skyscraper, on top of that skyscraper, to be able to get the angles we needed to cover the story of peregrines hunting pigeons in New York City. Um, I mean, it's amazing when you're up there, but it's such a slog getting them. And then when you're, you know, when you're, when you're filming raccoons and they're just going from one garden to the next garden. In India, we were filming these langurs and they were jumping from roof, rooftop to rooftop. And my job, my job was just to run down ahead of the crew and knock on a door and say, please, 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 can we climb up through the staircase all the way through your four story house up onto your roof? <laughs> and then they'd say, I mean, they were so friendly, the people in Jodhpur there. And, you know, more often than not, they'd always say, yes, come in, come in. So the whole film crew just charges through the house. Then we get to the rooftop and we go, sorry, they're gone. And then we just charge back down again. I mean, it was just, <laughs> it was, felt so rude. Um, but that was my role. Yeah. So um, just having to, just having to be polite a lot of times, ask a lot of favours of people was mainly the role, yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, something that strikes me so much when I watch these is uh, how the camera moves can feel very rehearsed. Uh, they're just, they're so cinematic. And I'm curious, you know, they're, they're in such synchronicity with the animals, like these pans and like, is this all luck or is it a lot of, you know, failed attempts at getting it or, or just both? Oh my God, I've got to answer this. Okay. okay. So with Rolf, it is not luck. So, so the camera moves is one thing, but the frame rate, the frame rate at which you film the animal, Rolf is obsessed with this. It's amazing. So normally you go, right, 25 frames a second, that's, you know, as it happens, but we want to slow down the animal a little bit so we can see the behavior a little bit better. Sometimes it helps to make the animal look a little bit bigger. Um, but if you slow it down too much, it's languid, you know, it's just like, oh, too much slow-mo. And so you want to get the frame rate just right. But we go 25, well, let's go to 30 frames a second. Let's go, let's go to a lot of camera ops will be, well, let's go to 40 frames a second. Oh no, maybe, but Rolf, it's like, is it 31 frames a second? Or 32 frames a second for this penguin? Because that penguin I shot at this frame rate, and it is fantastic. I absolutely love it because it's really trying to understand what's the pace of the behavior, what's the size of the animal. And it's what it shows is that Rolf is just tunneling into that animal and studying it and studying it and studying it to, to really answer the just the every minutiae detail to know how best to film it. And, and for Rolf, for those penguins, he's panning with a penguin. 
But the penguins never walk far before they stop. You just have a little ponder at life and then carry on. And I know that was doing your head in Rolf at the start of the shoot when he's just following this penguin searching for its chick and it's beautiful. And then it just stops. Like, why are you stop? I haven't let you exit frame yet. Um, and so I think it's, it's about that. It's about studying the, the particular animal you're with and, and really understanding it. But, but Rolf's a real master at that. <laughs> that is very flattering, uh, Freddie. Thank you very much. I mean, to be honest, you know, when you when I do the camera work, um, I'm I, I'm angry with myself most of the time. You know, like uh, because uh, yeah, you want to get it right, and it's a lot of it's it's so it's so hard to predict what what a what an animal does, you know, and, and I think that's why I always say to my producers, you know, I need to be in the field all the time because I need to get into a groove with each species. Each species moves different. Each species stops different. Um, and, and, and you really need to spend time to, to understand the movements because what is so important is, like in the movies, is the audience needs to forget that there was a camera involved. You know, they watch it as, as they have to immerse themselves into this film um, as, as another reality. You know, like you, you, you fail as soon as the audience starts to be, or as soon as the audience is remembered that there was a human being filming this. And that's why I think it is so important that everything has to be very precise. Camera moves have to be, preci be precise. The focus has to be perfect. The focus is incredibly difficult because we film with these giant sensors now, you know, like we have very limited depth of field. Every shot is a challenge because as soon as a bear or a wolf moves, you have to pull focus. And, and, and I think it is really about allowing the audience to immerse themselves into the film, forget about that it is actually a film because only then they can be emotionally involved. And I think that's why... That is why it's so important that camera work really is not only precise, but it also has to be like you have to shoot in the right light, which means you have to be out in the field long before it's dark and uh, sorry, sun is, before the sun is rising, that you can already see what's going on, where are, how can I find the best angle? And it's really, it, it involves a lot of, of time and, 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 and preparation. And, and, and I think, yeah. And, but for me, it's like, just to finish this thing, it's like, I think when you want to reach the highest level of wildlife filmmaking, um, it can't just be behavior, you know? It's not only about biology. It has to be more. It has to be emotional. The light has to be right. There has to be atmosphere. And only when these, all these things come together, people get really emotionally involved. And I think it has to be almost like you, let, you allow them to immerse themselves into all these different Star Wars planets, you know, a desert planet, a jungle planet, uh, uh, an ice planet, you really have to allow them to, to watch this, immerse themselves and actually trigger their imagination. I want that the audience actually starts, that the imagination starts, that they start to dream 
you know, like I really, I want to go far with this, you know, like when people tell me, you know, this could have been an interstellar or this was like in Star Wars. This is, you know, where I realized something else was getting started in their brains. You know, it was not just watching a biology lesson or watching some, some animal spectacle, you know, thousands of birds. It was really like you allowed them an experience. And I think that's what, what makes them emotional. And that's what, what allows us to, that, to, 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 to contribute that people really start to value the natural world. So I, for me, it's a really complex thing. Um, which needs a lot of, yeah, it just, it's a, a lot about, uh, yeah, it's a lot of factors involved mm -hmm. to get it right. Yeah, yeah, I think you can find such inspiration in the footage that you're capturing. You do, you open up the imagination, you unlock our almost childlike wonder. <laughs> uh, Freddie, you mentioned a little bit about this earlier, but you know, sometimes you're on these projects that take four years to uh, bring to life, two of which involve research, but could you talk a little bit about you know, that prep process, that research, what goes into it? And then at, one, at what point do you invite Rolf or you know, the cinematographer onto the project? The, f the first year is really, let's say you've got, you know, the title of your program is the continent of Antarctica or it's the urban environment of cities. It's, um, it's a kind of really broad brushstroke of um, what is it that you most want to say about that environment, that part of the natural world. Um, I think that's key. So you, you can just go out and look for lots of new stories that's happening in the urban environment or new behavior that's just been discovered by scientists in Antarctica. And that's obviously really important. But I think for me, you want to say, well, what, what is it that you're trying to say um, in cities, it was that it's a new habitat, you know, and it's a rapidly changing habitat. So how are animals dealing with that change? In, in Antarctica, it was talking about the hostility of that continent compared to other continents. It's so incredibly hostile, and yet animals are so well adapted to those conditions. That actually, the main hostility has come from humans in the form of whaling and climate change, like we discussed. And I think that I think that's it, trying to get an overarching feel of what the narrative is going to be. Then you populate it with all the different animal behavior stories that you research. And that's a, that's a very challenging task because there's lots of people making wildlife films now and there's a long history of wildlife films having been made. So it's harder and harder to find new stories. And new stories is really important to me. And I think it's really important to Rolf as well. It's, um, if, if something has been filmed before, that's, that's great, but you, it's, it's better if, you're, if you have to film it again, that it's got a new twist to it, or you're, you're revealing something new about it. But we're always searching for, for something that really takes people by surprise, takes us by surprise when we hear about the story. Um, so that's like contacting lots of scientists that spend time in the field and know their animals. Um, it's in the urban environment, it's like more and more just about what's out there on social media. People, you know, come across these incredible stories and no one really knows about it. Um, and then we follow it and we take a punt on it and think, okay, is that, is that gonna work? Um, I, think, I think once you've, once you've got a host of behavioral sequences and you've got your narrative structure, then the key is 
the emotional story. And I think ultimately that trumps the narrative. Strangely, you want to set up your film, this is going to be a film about this and you want to conclude your film. Um, but ultimately, if your emotional story throughout it, the arc throughout it doesn't work, it's the film's not going to be very satisfying. And then it becomes a real puzzle um, because if you're choosing to have a moment of reflection where there's some sadness that's come in, then what are you, what are you putting after that? Are you going to leave some space for reflection or are you going to go straight into a dramatic sequence? Um, I, think, I think when you get to tough emotions like sadness, you, you've got to think, why, why are you choosing to take people to a sad place? I think if when I watch something and I, I feel really sad in it, but I understand why I'm sad about it, I think it's a beautiful thing. I think it's a wonderful thing. If I don't know why I'm sad by the end of it, I, I felt really sad there, but I didn't really... It didn't, it didn't really conclude, it didn't really land, it didn't, then I, I sort of feel a bit frustrated by it. Um, and that's to do with sadness, but I think that's across all the emotional palette. And that's the, I think that's the really difficult thing because we're filming wildlife, so you don't know what's gonna happen. So you go out with this intention of, right, we're gonna film this behavioral sequence that may be a hunt, um, but you don't know in that hunt, that's a really good example. You don't know whether the predator is actually going to succeed or not. And they're two very, very different endings to those pieces. It's either sort of, you know, triumphant predator succeeds because it's got young to feed, or there's a sadness to the predator not um, getting its meal, or there's a winning of the prey getting away. It, there's so many ways you can, you can play it, but of course you, you, just, you just don't know what you're going to get. So um, I suppose it just keeps evolving throughout that four year period. Mm -hmm. I think the last, last thing to say on, on that um, is to do with the music. I absolutely love it when the music composition is brought into the project because a really good example of that is when I was filming the Hanuman Langas in India, we ended up standing right next to the group of females in this group. And there was the alpha male and this group of bachelor males were coming into his territory every morning and challenging him, trying to depose him so that a new male could take on this group of females. And the fights were really, really dramatic and they were happening right beside us. At one point, this male did this enormous jump about six meters and it brushed past my shoulder as it did the jump and um and you get this phenomenal set of rushes um and then you come back and you're in the edit and there's you've recorded you've recorded the sound but somehow just the sound and the visuals aren't taking you to the place that you felt when you were there and that's when the music comes in mm -hmm. And for me, because they're such long, it's such a long period of making one hour of TV, four years, that by the time the music comes in, we've been working this film for so long and it just reinvigorates it, just makes me fall in love with the project again, all over again, suddenly to go, that's it. That's the music that captures the feeling that I had when I was there. And that's what I think 
we want we want to bring. I mean, there's, I think there's one more thing uh, about when you plan your stories, you know, like, and you make a decision, you go for something. The beauty about the natural world is that you can actually also capture something that nobody thought about. And I think that is one thing which is so exciting about wildlife filmmaking that that you go, you have a mission, you have your script, you know the story you want to tell, but sometimes something else comes up which absolutely absolutely blows you away and like like this last series perfect planet you know we went to the high arctic we wanted to film the, the, the wolves um we were hoping to film them hunting muskoxen and we heard about these mythical stories that there, there are these giant groups of 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 of, of arctic hares and, and congregating and 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 they like a natural force moving through the arctic because they you can uh, you know, like they they eat all the, the the roots and all that kind of stuff so you we heard about that, but nobody has taken a photo of it. Nobody has ever filmed it. So we didn't even think about filming it. We were just on our mission with the muskox. And then suddenly we run into, the, we, we, we were like looking like, what is this? The, the ground is moving. And we realize this is not snow. This is actually a gigantic group of Arctic hares. And then suddenly we see there are wolves. And, and the whole spectacle gets started. We are in this like mythical thing. It, re, it's, it exists in reality. There are the bunnies, there are the wolves. They are chasing, the wolves are chasing the bunnies. I'm completely like totally, I'm, uh, it's like exhausting to, you don't know what to do. You just film the hell out of it. Like for the few minutes that it happens in front of you and then it's gone. The bunnies were gone. You know, like it was like, did we just enter another zone? You know, uh, and 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 it was it was done. You know, the wolves disappeared, the bunnies disappeared, and we were there and like totally exhausted, ice in the face. You know, totally like minus forty degrees, and we went back to the to the research station. Realized it's actually on on the in the camera. You know, this mythical thing, and I think that's the magic. You know, when you when sometimes you 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 film something that you did not even plan or imagine you know and and i think this is I, you know if you make drama maybe that can happen if there's an actor and he has a genius moment and you just think as a director oh my god i did never expect this to happen this will make the film i will add another dimension to it but in the natural world it's it is it can be really intense because it can be something that in you, you have never even heard about in the craziest case you know so I, I i love that you know that sequence in particular going back to music ready the music in that sequence is it's almost like a ballet you know if there's this dance between the hairs and the wolves and there is there's something so magical and it, it, it does feel mythical um <laughs> but this brings me to another question rolf um i feel like there has to be a certain humility in what you do because you know you're, you're not sure what you're going to capture in a day and you, what you're capturing might never be captured again so let's say i'm sure there are days where you don't capture anything or you don't feel fulfilled by the uh visuals you've gotten how do you how do you make yourself uh how do you not beat yourself up after something like that I mean, I beat myself up all the time. I mean, <laughs> so I, I, I haven't found a way to not do it. But I think, you know, 
wildlife filmmaking is incredibly frustrating because most of the time you don't film anything or you just film average stuff or boring or you 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 repeat yourself you know but um but um yeah i mean the humility i think you know in men like for example i'm here for five months now to film polar bears and uh and I feel, you know, people tell me, you are so lucky you are out there, you know, like it sounds uh, that the comments that I get from friends and colleagues, you know, like you have your Arctic holiday, blah, blah. But, you know, when it comes to, you know, like I feel really humble about this because the Arctic environment, as we all know, is changing so fast. Polar bears have it, have a really difficult time. Um, and, 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 I get the opportunity to spend five months with polar bears now. And that means I'm actually, I'm documenting this stage in time. I get the opportunity, you know, and for me, this is a responsibility because not many people can do that. There are not many cameramen who get the opportunity to spend so much time with polar bears, get into the zone, you know, and capture this moment in time, how polar bears survive this winter, you know? And that's why I think for me more and more, when I get frustrated, I start not take myself serious anymore, you know, with all my emotions and all like all my worries and all, all that stuff. I just say, Rolf, this is your responsibility. And it's, and you know, I might, might sound too big and maybe I'm megalomaniac, but I look at this as a service. You know, I want to capture this for humanity because I really believe that wildlife films can change the world. You know, and I think if I shoot on these big programs that I'm allowed to work on, you know, if I if I capture stories which will really hit the people hard emotionally, I think that's my way to contribute to a better world. You know, so I'm I'm like under pressure. I feel like really I, it's intense for me you know I'm prepping this thing I have to deal with all the gear here it drives me nuts and and I know you know on uh, in in 24 hours or a little bit more we're going to leave you know into the wilderness and then it's really about capturing the lives of, of the polar bears and and I want you know I really want that I really hope that I film something which will do something with the audience because as Freddie said, you know, we have gone so far as humanity. We have to find ways to wake people up. You know, people are trapped in their own urban lives. They don't, they, they're so busy with their own stuff that they, they, it's so hard for them to empathize with all the wildlife, you know, with the uh, out there, which is struggling through global warming and, and through all these different problems. So, um, yeah, I, I, I really, to sum it up, I, I start to take myself less serious. You know, I really look at it as a responsibility and I don't think too much about my frustration and my emotions, you know. Mm -hmm. Freddie, I want to throw the same question to you. Yeah. Um, I think, um, I think, I mean, Rolf really beats himself up. <laughs> Rolf gets good stuff every day. What I love working with Rolf is when the light's good. Rolf, just, I mean, it's, um, Rolf gets ecstatic when the light is good. I mean, it's, it's just something to see. It's really special. Um, 
Yeah, it it is difficult. There, there, there does when you're on location, it does feel like the pressure is quite high. The, you know, working for the BBC, it's BBC line, license fee, payers money that's getting you into these places. You have a limited budget and it's expensive. It's expensive to get to the wilderness. Um, but I think um, I think that there's the good the good thing is that you you um for, for me it, it it's about it's about getting into the right mindset um for a successful shoot mm -hmm. i think in the sense that if the if everyone's really connected to where they are and to what's going on then the magic happens i think if you're disconnected if you're worrying about other things or is sometimes where technical gear can really disconnect you as well where you get real problems with technical good gear then you you really start worrying about oh why can't i get this shot everything's freezing up or the you know the gimbal is is <laughs> not working properly or there's stiffness in the tripod that can really disconnect you when whenever when my job is to try and not technically so much but try and make a lot of the distractions go away so that the cinematographers can really um, just lose themselves in what's going on in front of them and get them into the right place. And I think that's, um, yeah, I think that's key. And then if you feel it, you'll, you'll see it, you know, that, I don't know. Do, do you think so, Rolf? It feels like if you, if you're really feeling the story, if you're really feeling of what's going on, you start to see tiny details in, the behavior with Rolf when he was filming the King Penguins on South Georgia. We actually went to film a totally different story, a really dramatic story about chicks being washed away in this river um, coming down from the glacier. And the scientists get there one year and then over winter, no one's there. And we arrived in early spring, no scientists had been there that year. <laughs> and the river coming from the glacier to the beach had totally disappeared. It moved to a totally different part of the beach where there was no king penguin chicks. So we had a totally blank slate of like, well, what are we going to film? <laughs> We've just sailed here for 10 days. <laughs> um, and, and it's an incredible story about how adult penguins in a colony of 500,000 penguins leave, go to the sea to feed, sometimes for weeks at a time, and then they come back and they're going to find their chicks and their chicks don't just stand in one place going, Hey, and where you left me, you know, they get curious and they wander off and they want to have a play with the elephant seals. And, and, and that was a story that we really picked up on there and then, you know, whilst we were on location. And a lot of that was Rolf's eye. So there was this moment where um, this chick found a little ball of fluff, this, ball of penguin feathers and picked it up and started playing with it in the wind then the other chicks started getting curious and came over and started going for it and that was a tiny moment of you would say not very dramatic behavior which was so emotional it was so sweet to see this competition over this little ball of fluff and then it blows off and they chase after it and collect it and it was over in a flash now, I think with a certain set of eyes, you wouldn't film that. Mm -hmm. Okay, 
the chicks are just playing with a ball, ball of fluff, you know. So it's, you know, the chicks do silly things. But Rolf was coming back with rushes of when the chicks on particular windy days, you can imagine all the feathers in this colony just kind of whip up and start blowing around in these eddies and they're cycling around in circles in the wind. And some of the chicks, just some of the chicks, just start looking up in a kind of dreamlike state it looks like. And they're almost falling over with their heads looking right up into the sky following these feathers blowing around in these mesmeric states. And Rolf captured these and they're not in the film, but they're such beautiful images. I think there are lots of people that wouldn't necessarily see that. And if they saw it, they wouldn't think that's something to film. And I think that if you're there with some kit that's playing up or there's some politics in the crew or there's, you know, other stuff going on, you don't see those details, but those details are really lovely and they bring the character to life. And that's, it's an art form. So I think that's the, that's the main aim. And it's also why we're there, you know, that's, I always, I mean, Rolf and I have talked about this endlessly. You know, we, we love getting up really early and getting there before sunrise because you've traveled so far to be there. So we want to be there, even if the weather is awful and you're never gonna film everything because the light's totally flat. It's still nice to be surrounded by those animals and to be outside, so. You know, like it is, it's, it's, I think it is, you know, like I'm shaped by, I always say like old school ethics, like old Protestant ethics. So for example, on that shoot, you know, we had this occasion, like you, you see a lot of brutal stuff on, in the wilderness, you know, like penguins get out of the water, they have been attacked by leopard seals, you know, they're full of blood, they have holes in their throats, you know, you, and I empathize with them, you know, I know this is a hardworking penguin mother or, or father, you know, like they, he's bleeding to death and he still tries to find the chick. And, you know, for me, this is all stuff that touches me, you know, and we had that moment <laughs> in, uh, in Antarctica where we were living on a small boat, you know, we were stinking, or at least I was stinking really bad because all day long you are sitting in the, like the dock droppings of elephant seals and, and, and penguins and you sweat there's no shower nothing for weeks on end and there was a national geographic cruise ship uh in the bay and they offered us to get onto the boat take a shower eat some good food and and, and drink some wine and you know i was dirty as hell you know i was hungry as hell but i couldn't go on that boat because I felt like these penguins work so hard. Some of them are dying right that night, you know, because of their injuries. And I go on the boat and I enjoy life and, and I can't do it. So um, I stayed there on the boat, ate a little bit of bread, you know, and the, the simple food that we had and, and thought, you know, this is my, I, you know, like, it, I think it is, it makes, the wilderness makes you very humble. You know, and when Freddie says these nice things about, me, you know, last night um, I worked on the gear until nine o'clock in the evening. And then I tried to go in the restaurant. The restaurant was full. I said, they said, sorry, guy, restaurant's full. Um, 
I, I come back again, I don't know, 45 minutes later, uh, restaurant still full says, hey, sorry, can't, you can't sit here, go. Next time I go, you know, like it's quarter past 10 and, and, and the restaurant owner says, you are not allowed to get in here. It's COVID times. After 10, nobody gets in here. Get out. And I think, you know, this is my normal life in civilization. You know, I just don't fit, you know, like the guy throws me out, you know. And then I'm here with you, Maria, talking on the film round table and, and, uh, and, and, and with Freddie saying these nice things. And, and I think that this is like, life is so crazy you know like on the one hand you you have, have this humiliation and i have this endless humiliation in the human world and then you go to the wild places and you have so many incredible experiences and i think that sometimes for me it's overwhelming you know yeah yeah well i mean you really you do put yourself in the mindset of the animals that you're capturing and i think that's why you do capture those moments that a lot of people would miss or wouldn't think are important enough to capture because you you genuinely are there you're feeling with them um yeah, yeah i just think that's pure magic I'm, I'm very conscious of our time but i do have one more question i want to throw to both of you and i'll start with you freddie as a producer how do you ensure that you're leaving the smallest footprint uh in these places you're going to yeah that's really important um and that's something we just have to think about more and more and more um i am just always trying to hire equipment, especially the heavy equipment on location, if it's possible. So for cities, when I worked on Planet Earth 2, it was easy. You go to New York, you go to Australia, you can, you can hire your kit there rather than taking it all the way from the UK to Australia and excess baggage. Um, that's, that's, that's key. Um, and there's more and more we're thinking about in terms of just how are we going to charge our batteries? Are we going to use um, solar panels? And, you know, but I think, I think, um, I think it's a, it's a, it's a very, it's a very important question that we realize that it's a, it's a big responsibility. So I, I don't, I'm lucky I fly when I go on these jobs, but I don't, fly outside of that um because i think look at my footprint already you know we, we take a film crew to the antarctic it's a long way away and you have to take a lot of gear with you um but the main main thing i feel is that when you arrive in these wilderness locations you really really respect the wildlife there so you know absolutely zero pollution i think working in the antarctic is really amazing of of all places you know of that size really you know it, it, it's got the antarctic treaty governing it and the antarctic treaty has these pillars and the pillars are um no militarization of the whole continent and it is there for scientific discovery and it is there for conservation of the local wildlife and that is incredible so when you arrive to the Antarctic, all the rules that you have to adhere to put you in a second second tier to the wildlife. You are so, you know, there is absolutely no way that you can leave any form of pollution there. And you have to be um, very, very respectful of the animals. Make sure that you're not 
disturbing them. You know, you're not um, stressing them out. Um, and I think that's the that's the key mentality to have is that we've got a job to do and we've got to go there, but we've, we've got to do it respectfully and we've got to do it holistically, you know, but, but are we there Maria? No, we've got a long way to go. There's a lot of questions still to answer about how best to operate in the field so that we leave the smallest footprint. And that's that, the word footprint is such an important word these days. It's your carbon footprint, but it's also, it's also the, the way you tread in that landscape and to, to tread softly. You know, we're humans, we're loud, we clang, we make a lot of noise. You gotta go in there really gently and try to melt away into the landscape. And that's, that's how you're gonna get the sense of the place. That's how you're gonna get the best behavior. Um, and that's how you're gonna leave the, the least impact. Rolf, I want to throw it to you. <laughs> I, I just have to add one thing to Antarctica first, you know, like because Antarctica really is different. The first time I flew into Antarctica with a Hercules plane, this military cargo plane or whatever it is. So a gigantic plane and we landed on the ice and, and you don't realize in such a plane that you landed because there are no windows. So you can't really look out of the window. You're just sitting in there. They say, you have to leave the plane. I honestly, I didn't even realize we landed. So you get out of the plane and suddenly you are in Antarctica and you feel, honestly, this might sound esoteric, but you feel there's a different frequency because you are on the only continent which is not inhabited by Germans. Uh, Germans by, by humans <laughs> uh, and 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 uh, and you I felt that immediately this is the last wilderness we have you know and it was incredible feeling so um, Antarctica definitely is different um, but you know when it comes to my footprint I have to admit or also the, the, the footprint of uh, productions I have to admit the ambiguity of our lives in these high-tech civilizations or in this civilization it kills me. You know, I think about it every day and I hate the idea that we are all vampires, that we all suck on each other. We suck out the energy of the nature. We suck out the energy of people that we exploit who work cheap in other countries for us. It, it kills me, you know, it's, it's, it's a daily struggle for me. But in my private life, I at least try, you know, like I'm a vegetarian for 20 years. I don't, I, the last 15 years, I haven't traveled privately. So uh, I, the last year, I stayed at home, you know, I, I moved, I live in the mountains. I just go for hikes, I did my stuff with the bike mainly. I really try to live a simple life, you know, a simple life is still, uh, you know, you go to the supermarket, you buy food, but I just try in the, in the summer, I even tried to live vegan. Um, then, uh, then, uh, yeah, no traveling personally. But as soon as you're filming, you, you, I go to wild places which are far away, and it, of course, has an emission footprint. I justify it, you know. I try to justify it. It's still a struggle, but I, I just try to justify it that, uh, that there's a purpose, you know, and it is inspiring humanity hopefully with good films um but but um with with good stories and and waking people up and make the apathy and but it is definitely a struggle because yeah you can't live completely emission free at this stage with making films you know 
So I don't know. But in the field that you don't disturb the wildlife or that you don't, I mean, that we are working on a very ethical level that is, you know, like we can't do anything else. We have guides with us who observe what we're doing. Um, there are laws, there are permissions. It's complex, you know, like, so nobody will push wildlife. I mean, that's, we love it. So we will, that's the last thing we do. Mm-hmm. But definitely it's, 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 it's complicated. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, <laughs> I feel like I could talk to you guys for the rest of the day. <laughs> I, yeah, no, thank you. Thank you both so much for sharing your time, sharing your stories. Uh, this has been one of my favorite roundtables thus far. Um, I, before we log off, I want to give a quick shout out to the rest of the team at Film Roundtable, Aaron Weil, Matthew Wolf, and Doug Torres. And I want to thank all of our listeners for your support and for taking the time to listen to these artists uh, discuss their views and their craft. And please, please check out their films, guys. This is really important work. Uh, Yeah, follow us on Instagram at Film Roundtable and subscribe to our podcast. And we'll see you all soon. Can I say one last thing, Maria? Of course. I mean, honestly, I got, I had my heart beating faster all day long because I feel so honored to be on your round table. Honestly, you know, it was, I, I was overexcited, you know, like I, I, I didn't even know how to cope with it because, you know, you, you, your, your round table is so amazing. You know, I love the podcasts and I just, I feel honestly honored that I was allowed to, to, yeah, to be part of this. Thank well, you. No, we were honored to have you. Thank you. And Marie, thank you so much. It's, oh. re- it's always strange when you're asking questions and I'm thinking, well, it'd be lovely to talk to you and ask you questions as well. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> always exactly. feels slightly rude in this situation. Thank <laughs> very much. <laughs> well, thank you both. Uh, and I'll, I'll keep up with you guys. I mean, Rolf, I know you're going to be off the grid for a while, but I'm glad to have made this connection. Yeah, thank you very much. It was a real pleasure. And for your patience, thank you. Sleep well, guys. (laughs) Bye-bye.